So we're still in shock. It took us like eight tries to write this intro. So we're just going to get straight to the point. On today's episode of Forks and Fangs, we interview the one and the only SJ Sindhu. We talk about everything from her novel Marriage of a Thousand Lies, Pride Month, and her pandemic life. So stay tuned. Welcome to Forks and Fangs. In today's episode, we have a very special guest, SJ Sindhu. Hello. Hi. She is the author of Marriage of a Thousand Lies, our book of the month for June. She has a doctorate degree in creative writing from Florida State University. She's an award-winning author, a professor based out of Toronto, Canada, a skincare connoisseur, and Last but not the least, she has a brewing company at home. <laughs> <laughs> the end might be might be a white lie, but if you check her out on Instagram, I think you would agree with me. <laughs> Anything is possible. <laughs> All right, so uh, let's jump right into it. Now, we are Forks and Fangs, and uh, it's our tradition to normally couple a meal with our discussion. Um, but because we are in the middle of a pandemic, we were unable to go out and uh, um, get some uh, good Sri Lankan food. Because um, <laughs> uh, we are in Florida, so everything is heightened here right now. Yeah. So we're trying to be cautious. So we wanted to know um, what Sri Lankan dish that reminds you most of your of your childhood? Um, it would probably have to be fish uh, head curry. Oh my God. Tell us about that dish. At, at, um, my, so, like, fish heads in Sri Lanka are especially coveted. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's Same. not, you know, it's, yeah. Same. <laughs> they're, it's, they're beautiful. and uh, But here, it's really easy to kind of get in the West. Because, um, like, that's the trash thing that, that's the trash product that every yes. fishmonger throws out. Mm-hmm. So they sell it for super, super cheap. So my parents still buy it and... Uh, make this like beautiful beautiful like very creamy fish curry out of the heads and it's just it's so good it instantly transports me back um back to Sri Lanka that's your is that your favorite dish is that the one you always asking your like your mom to make yes yeah when when I go home to my parents house um almost immediately my dad will come home with like fish heads and be like, <laughs> yes make this fish head curry yeah yeah it's delicious that's what's up. <laughs> we really wanted to try some because there's only one one restaurant that's Sri Lankan in Orlando, um, and it's a food truck. And oh. we we were surprised because at first we didn't think that we were going to be able to find anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's a food truck. I think it's called Ceylon Hut, and we we'll have to hit them up hopefully soon when all of this is has died down. We got to try some of those delicious delicacies. It looks, it looks so good. It looks delicious. Yeah, so, you, it, the food truck should have uh, stuff like kotroti, um, which is just, it's amazing. It's like roti, but like stir-fried oh. stuff. It's so good. Oh, man. Yeah. See, my yeah, life revolves around food and books, so... <laughs> <laughs> 
So in addition to uh, food, I always like to have some kind of libation to go <laughs> along with it. So um, we want to know, like, how long have you been doing your your brewing of the, the beer and the wine and, and all the things? This is impressive, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> like, it, it takes a lot of time and patience and knowledge to do that. It's definitely about patience. Um, I, I started brewing many years ago in Boston with a friend of mine and uh, we actually had this dream of like opening a brewery See, and, I told like, you she got it. residency <laughs> in the brewery um, and we were like we'll go to Denver we'll like buy a plot of land outside yes. and we'll do all this stuff um, it never materialized because we both went to grad school and, and you know then everything fizzled but um, I started brewing there and then just during quarantine I picked it back up I haven't done it ever time um but this has been keeping me going during the lockdown how long does it normally take to make something um it depends on the beer but uh if you're doing like an ipa about a month um you can have it you can make it and then like be able to drink it but if you're talking about like a stout or a porter it's gonna take like you know, two to four months to really oh, come that's into its flavor. Patience. Yes, it's just like growing my tomatoes. Yes, <laughs> that's my pandemic life. <laughs> you have beer, I'm growing tomatoes. <laughs> She's become a farmer. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> All right, so I guess we'll go ahead and just dive right on into this book. Yes. Yeah. Um, but um, we want everybody to know that even though we're releasing this in a later date, um, today is the anniversary of Stonewall. Um, and we just wanted to know that, you know, what does this anniversary mean to you and how do you celebrate pride on, you know, on your own? Um, well, it's, you know, it's, it means a lot to me. Um, I came out when I was 17 and I sort of like grew into the queer community. Like the time that I was becoming a young adult is like also the time when I was figuring out my sexuality and figuring out um, where my community is and how to access that community. Um, and, you know, I came out while I was at, um, in, at university in Nebraska, which is not a very queer friendly place. Yes. in general mm-hmm. um and it's not a very friendly place for people of color either so uh there was like there were a lot of different ways in which i was you know feeling oppressed and mm-hmm. feeling sort of caged in and um then i started taking classes at the university um they actually the university of nebraska has some of the oldest queer studies classes oh, wow. in the u.s which you wouldn't expect um but yeah, they, they mostly live in the English department. And so, you know, I started reading these queer books and learning about Stonewall and um, the riots and, and the ensuing movement. And I, I became an activist, a queer activist and, and um, did a lot of organizing around queer issues. So like, it's just very, very close to me. And for me, um, pride isn't really about parades or parties. Mm-hmm. It's really about, you know, um, the spirit of revolution mm. and i think right now it's really nice to i mean i'm in canada so there's not really protests happening i mean there are some protests but they aren't they don't have the same kind of momentum to them that, mm-hmm. that the u.s is, uh, has um but it's really nice to see like all the blm protests happening it's it's just 
like I think part of what makes Stonewall important is to remember that like um, you know black and uh, people of color um, POC like trans women are the ones who started yes. and were behind um, a lot of the early organizing and that has become forgotten and whitewashed um, so it's really important to remember like black trans women at this time yes. in this month specifically yes. so yes yes indeed so when you were talking about you you coming out um how how was that like for your family um your parents because i'm asian and it's very hard just we see things black or white there's almost no middle ground for anything and if you go outside of like the norm then it's very hard for people to wrap their minds on it mm -hmm. around it um well even to this day so i came out when i was 17 in 2005 or six so it's been 15 years even today my mom can't say the word gay like she just can't say it can't bring herself to say it mm. and she um she still pretends that like all my family pretends that and that that like side of me doesn't exist and that you know i don't I don't have that I like I don't have those things in my books just they just like don't see it like blinders complete uh tunnel vision mm -hmm. when it comes mm -hmm. to my sexuality so yeah it's uh it was it's been a long road <laughs> uh but even now like it's not it's not something that's discussed in my family mm -hmm. is it something that um like like you were saying that your your mom doesn't even try to say the word. Mm -hmm. Is it something that she totally ignores, or does she replace the word? Like when I was dating my my boyfriend, my mom wouldn't say, "Oh, that's your boyfriend. That's your friend," because she wouldn't want to attach herself to that. So what what is it? Is there anything that she would replace it with, or would she just totally ignore it? Well, she definitely does use the word friend. Mm. Um, and for most of my exes, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, even in the, like talking about the past, and mm -hmm. she she just like can't say the identity labels mm -hmm. um, for some reason. I think it's because like again with Asian culture, it's it's not really about individual identity, and queerness a lot of times gets relegated to just behavior. So behavior can be changed, yes. apparently, mm. <laughs> according to my parents. So mm. um, they, they got super religious after I came out. And um, I don't know, it's still like we just don't talk about it anymore. Mm -hmm. And at this point, you know, I'm in my 30s. I'm just like, I, I get, I don't, I, I fine, fine. Yeah. I'm yeah. just like, I'd, I'd rather just have a decent relationship with my parents right now at this point in my life than mm. like really insist mm. that they acknowledge all of it um i don't know if they can i don't know if they will but mm, at this point i'm like that's okay i guess yeah. yeah you're living your best life you know if that that's what makes that if that would keep the harmony i guess in in the family i i understand that because 
I have a cousin, the only boy cousin. Oh, shout out if you're listening. I know you are. <laughs> <laughs> so he he was always like ever since he was young, I knew that he was different. Um, you know, that he was gay, but it took a lot for my uncle to accept it. Mm. Um, and it was hurting him a lot. So we had to talk to him. I guess now they, you know, same thing with you. They don't talk about it as long as everybody's kind of like living and coexisting peacefully. We're okay with it. And he has found his happiness. My uncle has found his happiness. And we're good. Yeah, it really... Like what you mentioned about like family is bigger than just immediate family too, right? Like for me, that's been super important to have cousins my age Mm -hmm. and my brother Mm -hmm. who are super, super accepting. Mm -hmm. So that makes it sort of better that the older generation just does, you know, like they ignore it and, but the cousins are totally fine. So I'm, you know, at least I have that kind of family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That really shows like the growth of the world where, where our people growing up now we're helping to usher in more of this movement of uh, of acceptance, of, of loving each other, of having empathy for each other. Like, it's it's necessary. And I'm seeing that the younger people under, under my age, because I'm 40, and to see, like, my nieces and my nephews, like, drive home a message that's so necessary and needed now, it just, you know, the kids are going to be all right. Like, the future is bright. <laughs> even we're in the middle of a pandemic and it's okay. It's fine. It's fine. All right. So, um, let's go ahead and just shift in over into this book after you're, you know, you're telling your story about your company now. Uh, we are, um, discussing a book called marriage of a thousand lies where, um, the main character whose name is lucky, uh, is fine. We find her in a marriage, um, with a man named Chris and both of them, are gay um and so they're in this this marriage um for circumstance convenience convenience in order to you know appease the family appease the family <laughs> to stay in the country that it is it's a necessary uh a necessary agreement that they have yeah. um but she has been ushered home because her grandmother is ill has fallen ill and with going home she you know Reembarks on this past. Oh, Nisha! Uh, this past relationship, <laughs> girl. <laughs> that she that she had uh, as growing up, and it has now sparked up this, you know, this much needed desire to, you know, uh, find her truth. So one of the one of the first things we want to know is like, what was the inspiration for the character Lucky? Um, well, lucky is everything that I'm not. So, I mean, no, that's not true. Uh, we have a lot of similarities, but I think we chose two very different paths, and we were different in all of the ways required to make those different choices. So mm-hmm. when the same choice was presented to me, I chose not to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I chose not to marry my, my gay best friend, um, which I could have done and, you know, my family might have been just as happy and we, you know, at that time though, I, I was like, true love, I 
and I want I want like my partner and all. But now, if I was faced with it, I might I might be like you know, living with my best friend is not the worst idea. Like mm-hmm. wh- why not? Um, marriage shouldn't just be about romance. It should be about partnerships. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, at that time, I chose not to, and Lucky did, and so like that's where the differences start. And then I just built her out from there. Um, so, you know, I, uh, in terms of she's masculine in a lot of ways um, yes. in how she holds her body and um, how she talks, how she sits. And I am as well, but um, because I'm really small, like I'm p- very petite, um, I tend to get red as more feminine anyway Mm -hmm. uh it's like it so for me it's easier to move through the world um and move through the Sri Lankan community because I'm read as cis and straight Mm -hmm. even though I'm queer and genderqueer Mm -hmm. um and that reading gives me that privilege just by being adjacent to it um which Lucky doesn't have so she like she already stands out like a sore thumb even though she doesn't want to. Mm-hmm. And um, and then, of course, you know, then you kind of think about craft in terms of, like, how do you have a character, how do you build a character who would make this kind of decision? Well, it's a character who wants to fit in, even though she can't. It's a character who um, who's conflicted about her family, who wants to keep them around, all of those things. So, um, yeah, so in a lot of ways, she is very similar to me, and in a lot of ways, she's completely the opposite Mm. um and that's those are the kind of negotiations i made when i was i was creating the character were those fun negotiations was that like something where you you were putting characteristics to her that you were like okay i really want her to do be this way like this is how i want to craft this person because you know sometimes i've written things where i'm like i want this character to look a certain way to behave a certain way because this is how I wish I could be out in the world or perceived in the world. Yeah. Um, sometimes I, I think I want to remember the writing of this book as fun, but it wasn't, mm-hmm. it was, it was awful while I was writing it. It was, I was just like, it was such a emotionally charged space for me. Mm-hmm. Um, the the world of this novel and entering it day after day was just it was a toll. Um, it was it was a heavy heavy cost for me in mm-hmm. terms of mental health. Um, and so I don't know. No, I don't think the negotiations were very fun, um, mm-hmm. even though they should have been. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, after I finished and I started writing a completely different novel, I was sort of like, ah. Oh, writing is fun <laughs> it's not doesn't have to be this like soul sucking thing that I was doing for five years while I was working on this book um, I'm so glad I did mm-hmm. but and I would do it again but it was just so like reliving trauma after trauma is just like exhausting mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so you speaking of your writing you wrote um, in the book about the closet you said that most people the closet think the closet is a small room. They think you can touch the walls, touch the door, turn the handle, and walk free. 
but when you're inside the closet is vast there's no walls no door just empty darkness stretching the length of the world so what is it so can you explain to like people that are you know not queer what is it to find freedom inside a closet because people might think or associated with like oh a place of oppression or freedom for themselves but maybe it's not the case I think like the closet is a very western way to think about sexuality mm-hmm. because um the closet carries like just the term carries with it this inside and outside perspective that you are either out or you're in um so you're either, either closeted or you're completely out that's not reality um and it's you know reality is having if you're going to be out you have to repeatedly come out over and over mm. um to every single person every single new like you know community you're in every new city you move to you have to repeatedly come out come out um so it's really like i think the closet if you're completely closeted to everyone then it's a um it can it can be really oppressive and it can be a cage but i think there are many shades of gray between being completely closeted and being like out 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 publicly mm-hmm. um so there's like you could be out to your friends or closeted with your family you can you know there's a lot of different ways to be um and i think that's something that uh the myth of the closet has sort of forgotten and um you know there's there's freedom in being able to make that choice because mm-hmm. there's always there's safety um, yes. involved as well like if if you want to stay in the closet in a particular instance because you think it's safer yes um emotionally or physically then yeah. that's you know just the fact that you can make that decision mm-hmm. is is power um so i think like there's all those factors too and that line actually was um was added very very late mm. to it like almost on the last pass um because I was talking to my partner and um who is a straight man and he was saying like uh basically like straight readers aren't going to understand why the closet like how queer people conceptualize the closet mm-hmm. and he was like you should you pr- might want to add something that like explains the closet very briefly and what it's like to be in it for straight readers. Mm-hmm. And so then we talked and and we sort of um both came up with this this the description mm-hmm. that ended up in the book. Um and I'm so I'm really happy that it's in there. Um and it seems to be really really important for um for people who aren't queer and maybe yes. people who are too mm-hmm. that that they like see that experience reflected. Mm-hmm. Um but it it really was important for the stakes of the novel to make that clear. I always had a feeling while reading it that Lucky's character was always I felt like she had these moments of her wanting to say fuck it, I'm going to tell everybody. <laughs> I always mm-hmm. felt like she was getting close to that point and then something yeah. happened. She comes back right in. And she would just be mm-hmm. like, oh, you know, like I just can't do it right now. Mm-hmm. And even with her wanting to run away with, like, Nisha, um, you know, I really felt that would have been, like, the huge, like, yes! You know, now everyone could know. But 
I felt like Nisha's character was probably the main thing that was keeping her from actually doing that because of her going back and forth. Um, for me, Nisha was a problematic character in this story. <laughs> we call her wishy-washy Nisha. Oh my goodness, <laughs> she was... She doesn't really like her, as you can tell. <laughs> I, I had I, I had issues with Nisha because, like, I, I've known people like that where it's just, you know, they, they claim they want something. And I understand all of what she was dealing with. But I still felt that even if she wasn't dealing with that, she would have still been doing the back and, the back and forth because she wasn't really wanting lucky i think she just wanted the idea of that i can have lucky and then maybe i can have something else out there you know she had her experiences when she was with the you know in the rugby house of that space of being there so you know i was i was just wondering you know why (laughs) why did you want her to be back and forth with with lucky Well, I mean, she, so I wanted to reflect the experience of a very femme character. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's complicated when you're femme, because at least in this community, because you're rewarded for your femininity Mm -hmm. and, and you can hide like Mm -hmm. you, no one ever, cause like people look at lucky and they know so instantly something is off. They're like, you seem different. Mm. But people don't see that when they look at Nisha. When they look at Nisha, they see a good Sri Lankan girl. And so it's so tempting to hide when you are able to pass that way. When you're able to pass with, like, absolutely no question. It's so tempting to just not tell anybody. Because if you don't, then you're safe you know you don't have to deal with their emotions you don't have to deal with any of that Mm -hmm. so um Anisha is what Anisha is one of two characters that's actually based on a real person um so like uh Chris is the other one Mm -hmm. uh, who's based on my best friend but Anisha is based on a um a friend I had when I was in middle school and the early parts of high school and she was a Sri Lankan Tambu girl. She lived very close to me, and we, um, our parents were friends, and they they were actually uh, our landlords. And so we spent a lot of time together. Mm-hmm. And she was, you know, I had that every every queer person has this experience of like being in love with a straight person, and mm-hmm. you know, not being a, and like not being able to really know what's happening. Um, so like, I wanted to capture that like in love with a straight girl thing Mm -hmm. that most queer women go through. Um, But in this case, it is somebody who um, reciprocates that in some way Mm -hmm. and um, sort of goes back and forth. So I needed, like, the story needed an an antagonist that's not just the mother, right? Mm -hmm. Because the mother isn't, to me, isn't really the antagonist of the story. It's Nisha. Mm -hmm. Because uh, Nisha's the one that, like, sort of, makes like pull pushes lucky back and forth over this line of like sh- you know should i come out should i not should i come out should i not um and she's also the carrot on the stick right mm-hmm. she's making herself the carrot on the stick um but at the same time it you know she isn't 
great for Lucky. She's not ready to come out. Um, And that creates a lot of tension in the story that was important. Um, And she, you know, she is that, that temptation in um, any person's coming out. The, the, I guess, like, there's, there's two easy paths for Lucky, right? Like, one is to run away with Nisha and, like, never see her family again. Mm-hmm. And that is a sort of easy path because it cuts out. You just, like, cut and run and you can cut out the conflict in your life. Or the other easy path is to just stay in and uh, not tell anyone and just, like, you know, huddle in the closet. But, like, the complicated adult path is to try and, you know, uh, maybe come out, but also deal with her family and uh, figure out what's important to her. So, again, like, uh, Nisha was, um, Nisha makes Lucky sort of waffle between these two paths um, before uh, Lucky is able to really make a decision on her own. And so that's, that was, it was important to me to have that. Um, But yeah, it took me a long time to fully nail Nisha's character uh, and it took me a long time to have compassion for her character, which yes. was a lot worse in previous drafts. <laughs> <laughs> I was telling, I was telling Veronica, like, um, Lucky's story would never be completed without her character. But we were listening mm-hmm. to one of your interviews, and she was just like, "Why does she have compassion for this, <laughs> for this girl?" Like, and I, I, my kind of response is like, "I'm, I'm married, so." being married like for Nisha's character being married to somebody that you don't really care for is hard marriage or being with somebody is already difficult imagine if imagine if it's not somebody that you really love care for have nothing to do with it like it's it's a very difficult path for her mm-hmm. and that's where i see like her struggle and that's where i like you know try to find at least some sort of like heart for her, maybe two percent, you know. But <laughs> I knew I loved this story when I struggled with her character because it's just like if, you know, I'm watching a television show and I'm like, how is this person allowed to be so evil? How you know why are they on the and because they're really doing uh, a wonderful job at portraying that character and you've you've written Nisha perfectly so much so that. It creates that conflict, I know, inside of me when I read it. And um, I think that is probably my favorite thing about the book of, like, this book was a straight-up page-turner. Mm-hmm. Every every bit of the way, it, it, it just delighted my, my heart so much. And to see all of those things that those two characters were struggling with, I was just like, yes, this is a book I can really get into. Um, and within Lucky, um, you know, her her internal conflict of trying to decide whether she was going to come out. There was a point in the book uh, where you spoke about the Devdasi being women that enjoyed the privileges of married women in society, but answered to no man. Um, so what I want to know is what role do you feel colonialism plays and the restructuring of women's roles in a culture? And do you see there being a huge shift to women regaining this sense of freedom in our in our current culture? I think colonialism has a lot to do with it. Um, I'm careful because I don't want to 
paint pre-colonial India as this like haven for women mm-hmm. either. It clearly wasn't. It yes. was um, it was oppressive in many different ways, mm-hmm. uh, especially when it comes to caste. Yes, you know, um, caste privilege was there. like if you had caste privilege as a woman, then you had a lot more freedom probably. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you didn't, then you absolutely didn't, right? And it's it's like right now, caste privilege is being you know talked about a lot more in uh, Indian and Sri Lankan society. Mostly, be, like the impetus is actually Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. um, being, even though it's it's mostly a Western movement, it's sort of um, penetrated the discourse uh, around colorism back home mm-hmm. um, and how that colorism is tied to racism and is tied to casteism and um, you know how Indian society really needs to transform itself around all of these issues so it's really cool to see that happening um, but in general before you know 2020 mm-hmm. <laughs> it wasn't happening in the ways that I wanted it to be happening. So, uh, so just to say like pre-colonial India was still super problematic, Mm -hmm. but, um, what colonization did was it it further repressed women by attaching to them the role of culture keeper. Mm. So like men went outside the home, they assimilated into colonial society. They became westernized you know they uh indian men used to have long hair and their ears pierced and everything they cut it all off they started wearing western clothes um and women were supposed to stay in the house and keep the culture alive and teach it to the children so like that role started to be more and more um uh there started to be more and more of a gap between those two roles uh under colonization so uh it it drove women further into the private life i think um and and whereas pre-colonial india had options for women who wanted to live in a more public way um like being a devdasi or there were women scholars um like were like i'm never getting married i'm just gonna like read books and and talk with people all day Mm -hmm. like that was wasn't common but it was a path that some followed after colonization, that's not really, you know, it wasn't really uh, much of a thing. Uh, or under colonization, it wasn't really much of an option for a lot of women. Um, that said, there are there is a very strong feminist movement in India and Sri Lanka um, that's sort of gaining momentum, and uh, they're protesting. They're you know asking for change. Uh, in a lot of ways and so like there is change happening there's positive change happening Mm -hmm. um and i think it's also important to think about diaspora as a global thing Mm -hmm. and um, to to look at how all of these uh, movements are connected now online Mm -hmm. um you know how blm is connected to arab spring which is connected to the anti-caste movement in india which is connected to all of these you know other uh, which is connected to the hong kong protests like all of these are resistance movements that are um that are sort of globally now in a network and that's really positive to see and it's it's it makes me think that maybe you know sub, uh, substantive change is possible yeah I I can definitely relate to that because it's connected to like the anti-terrorism bill also in the Philippines. It's like fighting 
against this oppressor and you know like what she said earlier about the skin color defining where you stand in society that's very very prevalent up to now i think mostly in asian culture white is glorified brown and you know darker is basically looked as poor or you know basically neglected and it's it's sad because you would think in the year 2020 it would have been better but because of colonialism it's <laughs> definitely pounded into people's head mm. that you know what you are as an as an as a race as an ethnicity is trash because we are superior than all of you which is sad so the movements that are happening are necessary um for change to happen mm -hmm. um and yeah that's why i was like yes it's it's hard it's gonna be rough but it's necessary yeah it's necessary and 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 timely you know we all have that time to be able to sit home and really sit in our thoughts and really think about everything and not have so many distractions that's keeping us from the movement that is happening so mm -hmm. you know it's it's awesome to be able to see that happening worldwide on all different areas levels it's just it's beautiful um so one of the things where i really i i really like this part of the story because i could connect to it um was when you were talking about uh they're at the funeral for the grandmother and um ama is not truly like grieving in the very traditional sense because being a black woman growing up going to black funerals you know I'm used to us crying so much so to the point where we are literally trying to climb into the casket with our loved one. And so in the story, you know, you have her where she's trying to hold back. She's keeping that, you know, down because they are in this like white owned funeral parlor. Um, and I was just wondering, like, does it speak to... Um, color people who feel that they are unable to take up space because they are afraid of white pe what white people might might think of them and not just with Alma in relation to just her her mother passing but just like with the situation with her daughter just everything about what all of that would mean for her and having to suppress her, all of her emotions yeah I, I think um that's absolutely right that that uh being in a white dominated space um, really affects a lot of it. Um, for Lucky's mom, she faces a lot of racism on a regular basis, right? And she faces um, discrimination from her own community because she's divorced. So for her, it like, like her entire life has been um, compromising based on what people will think of her. Yeah. And like, this idea that if you do all the right things, then everyone will like you mm. and approve of you. Um, and I, I think the, the like funerals because and weddings, because they're so, you know, emotionally charged spaces and moments, um, they really bring that out. And her not being able to actually like cry, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> 
is is such a huge um, impediment for her being able to just like actually actually get over her mother's death. Um, and there's there's a lot of like um, like for example, I went to funerals um, in around the Boston area, and then I went to funerals in Toronto. And in Toronto, there are Indian and South Asian owned funeral homes. Um, so, like, the funerals are completely different. They are the way that they would be performed back home. And, you know, there's, you anoint the body with, like, oil and all of this other, um, like, material that's supposed to help the body pass into the, into yes. the um, next world. And, you know, everyone's crying loudly. Mm. Yes. And loudly. it's not, it's not considered a bad thing. And, and um, it, it really does help people move on a little mm-hmm. bit easier, I think, because like, especially when you, you cry so much, you're so just exhausted um, by the end. It, it, it uh, pulls all of the grieving out of you in mm-hmm. a certain way. Um, and if you're used to that, if you're, if you expect that and then you can't do it, um, it really like that kind of repression of your own emotions and your own identity really takes its toll. Um, and, and it's important for Lucky to see that, to, to see what she might become if she keeps mm. repressing her own emotions. Yes, <laughs> that, that part, yes. <laughs> so in, in the novel, because um, I think I identify with, you know, not with Lucky's maybe gender preference, but with Lucky's familiar experience so because i'm asian i'm filipino so it's basically like our our asian life is dictated almost by religion like it's intertwined with everything that we have to do we say we have it's it's ingrained in our culture and it's it's been taught to us since we're young so in this in this story how was how was religion able you know Religion was made to dictate your values, your beliefs, your cultures, traditions. How do you feel that religion was um, plays a big part in preventing Lucky and her sisters from finding themselves in the relationship that they truly wanted? Uh, well, I think like like most. Well, I don't even want to say most, um, but like many children of immigrants, they've sort of they feel a distance between themselves and, and their parents' religion. And, um, you know, I think a lot of young people feel this way. And by young, I mean, like, you know, I'm, I'm including a lot of generations in mm-hmm. this. Um, but, like, that negotiation is really interesting to me because it's not that Lucky really believes, you know, truly in the same things her mother believes in. Um, it's that she is unable to um, test her mother. Mm-hmm. She's unable to challenge her or question her or push her beliefs yes. because her mother's beliefs are so absolute. Mm-hmm. You know, her religion is so absolute that, mm-hmm. that any kind of challenging of that is not welcome in yes. any way. Yes. Um, and, and I, I, I've seen this happen more when 
there are there's like actual issues involved like queerness that that are um being mm-hmm. discussed when when religion becomes more absolute for the parents yes. um because they think that if they allow an inch then their kid will be like on a pride float somewhere um, <laughs> <laughs> being televised into the homes <laughs> of their friends or something um like that's what they fear so so it's um I know, like, for, for Lucky, it's sort of a, um, it's sort of an abstract thing that she still has, that has real, very real effects on her life. Um, and, and for her sisters, too, I think. Like, uh, some, I mean, clearly her oldest sister, Shyama, respects the religion, if not, mm-hmm. like, slightly believes in it. Mm-hmm. And Vidya completely, like, completely rejects it and completely rejects everything associated with it. And Lucky's again trying to walk that middle path. Mm-hmm. Um, and, Where do we and go? Struggling to do it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I love Vidya's character. I really, and it. She wasn't spoken about a lot, but what was told about her, it just was like, I want to know what that com- what happened. What was that conversation with her family when just she decided to leave with Jamal, and when um when when she had the baby and lucky went and and met up with them for the first time since she left you know where was jamal like did she totally free herself like she wanted to be free free of anybody trying to hold Mm -hmm. her to a certain standard yes i really would if you you know, feel like you want to write a follow-up novel, <laughs> short story, send it to me. I want to know what that conversation was like. But I love all of these characters being so multifaceted that they're all dealing with their own struggles in the same, dealing with them and from coming from the same areas that all of them are dealing with them in a different manner. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you think, like, you know, if, if, if Aman knew that there was a baby... Invidious life, would she would she be more willing to accept her daughter back? That's a good question. I mean, Vidya's still unmarried, mm-hmm. and she had a baby out of wedlock. So I mean, while she might be like she might want to know the grandchild, mm-hmm. I think her whole thing of like what will people think will keep her from really embracing Vidya the way that she should. Um, because, like, having a child out, out of wedlock is, like, literally the worst thing. Yeah, it's like, the greatest thing. There sin. is no other, no other thing that's worse. You could commit murder, <laughs> oh and it would still be better uh, in the Donald community than having a child out of wedlock. Mm-hmm. So do you think Amma's choices of, like, basically disregarding, like, the growth or the exploration of her children's, you know maybe partners sexuality impeded on their relationships um as you know as a family if she would have been probably more open then her daughters would have probably stayed or they might have been living a a a different life why is like society that important to to this novel or i guess to this culture well, I think it's important to people living in the diaspora mm-hmm. um, because for people like Lucky's mother, people like my own parents, um, 
they don't really have much in common with white people their own age. Yes. They just, they don't, they can't connect with them. All the white people their age are probably also mildly racist and like don't know how to connect back um, with them. And so they don't have any friends outside of their own communities. Like mm. every once in a while there'll be like cross community friendships, like, you know, East Asian people being friends with like South Asians, being friends with um, like black people, being friends with Latinx people. But like, there's not a lot of like white friends that people of my parents' generation have. Mm. Um, so then it, then like community becomes even more important. You know, if you want to have friends at all, you have to fit into this like very conservative community. And that means that you kind of sacrifice a lot of yourself and then a lot of your own kids' lives into um, into fitting into this community. Society feels like this invisible character that's always playing a part in our lives and the decisions that we make. Um, we we I think we talked about this question for probably about what, a good thirty. <laughs> Yeah, 30 we, minutes on one day maybe an hour the next because mm-hmm. we we were trying to wrap our heads around like the idea of fate and um so fate it seemed to be like a silent character in this novel presented lucky with the choice of either living the life that her family and even herself deemed as the right path um or you know be forced to deal with sins of her mistakes so we were just wondering did lucky making the choice to live in her truth actually be her fate the entire time and that the sins of her mistakes would have her been continuing to live um, with this internal lie of, of denying who she was. That's, I mean, that's always the tricky thing with fate, right? That you don't really actually, no one actually knows what it means. And even in, um, like even in South Asian and Hindu lore, um, no one actually can know what their fate is. And so um, you just live according to what you think it is. And then, um, like, my parents say this about me, uh, where they they were very upset when I changed my major to English and wanted to be a writer. They were just devastated. My mom cried on the phone for, like, a year. What did you change day. it from? Uh, computer science Mm -hmm. and so like it was it was truly truly devastating for them uh in a way I still don't understand but like for them now they're like well it was probably your fate to to (laughs) be a writer and I was like oh okay yeah so like in retrospect they can sort of justify all of the mistakes and all of the things (laughs) by saying that was your fate um so it's, it's really this like whatever fate is um it's nothing that humans can really like understand or Mm. or grasp and yet they try to all the time right Mm. astrology all of these natal charts yeah (laughs) natal charts all of these things like people are trying so hard instead of just like living your best life and seeing you know like just accepting that 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 is your fate or whatever whatever, however you want to think of it Mm -hmm. um but for Lucky's mother, it's a very, it's a very real thing that can be changed mm-hmm. and subverted in many ways. So as long as she can keep her daughters on the right path, 
then like they will be fated to be on it or something. I don't know. It's, it's a very like circular reasoning. Mm-hmm. Like my father-in-law would said, if you can't explain something, it's destiny. So mm-hmm. he just he just goes by that, <laughs> and he te- that's what he tells us in a regular basis. It's destiny, <laughs> but nobody you know would question him. It's just like it is. It is kind of like it is what it is, mm-hmm. and you just kind of go with the flow and try to be happy along the way. Mm-hmm. There's different ways of saying it. You can be like it's fate, it's destiny, it's God's plan. It's mm-hmm. you know, there's there's just they they all mean the same thing. Like, yes, you know. And all boils down to we don't know what the hell <laughs> is happening <laughs> in the next five minutes. We just gotta go with it. <laughs> um, so it was a, definitely a, a pleasure of like just sitting with this book and reading it. It is definitely one of my absolute new favorites. And I was just curious as to like what is your what is your writing process like, and has it changed since you found yourself in the middle of pandemic season? um my writing process for uh it i guess it changes for shorter works versus longer works um but for novels it's you know uh i do a very rough first draft and that takes me about a year actually to to finish that um i'm not a very fast writer like some people finish their drafts and like like the people who do NaNoWriMo I'm just like it baffles me yes. I can't do it I am not that kind of writer I cannot pound out 5,000 words a day mm-hmm. I can if on a good day I can make I can do a thousand maybe usually I do 500 like that's my that's my goal is 500 words um about four days a week five days a week uh so it's a very like slow and steady kind of process for me um but I tend to write very linearly. Like, I start at the beginning and I write to the end. I don't jump around. It confuses me. And I don't, like, I, I feel like when you're writing a novel, you're, um, you're adding strings and you're, like, trying to hold all these strings together and making sure that all the threads get pulled through. And if I jumped around, I don't think I could be able to do that. Mm-hmm. So um, I do that. I do a lot of a lot of drafts. So uh, for like marriage, um, it was twenty drafts. Wow. For this next book, it's probably going to be around twenty drafts. Twenty drafts. Um, twenty drafts before you submitted it to. No, no, twenty drafts from like probably about fifteen drafts before I submitted it, and then five more. Oh, this wow. is a labor yeah. of love. Yes. Yes, it definitely. is. Oh my god! Oh, wow. This is, by the way, my first queer novel, and I am very happy that this is my first. Oh. I think <laughs> it would set like such a high standard, and I'm, and I'm just like afraid that I won't be able to appreciate other things. <laughs> it's a blessing and a curse. <laughs> So on that note, I guess we could ask you, you know, what are some of the authors that influenced your writing um, throughout your life up until now? Um, well, uh, so before I started university, it was probably like just, you know, straight white men because that's all they taught us. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so, but right. they still, you know, ended up influencing my writing. Um, so the biggest influence is probably like Hemingway and Tim O'Brien. 
um, that's pre-university. And then once I got to college and I started taking like feminist lit classes and you know all these uh, queer lit classes, then I started to um, read the works of like Audre Lorde, uh, mm. Gloria Anzaldúa, and they both are were super, super, super influential on me. Um, James Baldwin as well. Mm. So I like I think those three are probably my like writerly parents. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yes. spiritually writerly parents I don't know <laughs> the um, ancestors <laughs> but there's there's a lot of like uh, influence I learned just from reading their prose and just mm-hmm. from reading like how they put sentences together how they pit certain characters you know put certain characters together certain um, and developed certain uh, aspects of different characters like just craft wise um, I think it was those were really influential for me so um now that we're talking about you know your writings and your novels can you give us like you know or whoever would be you know listening to us what would be your next work when can we expect it and you know maybe just a teeny tiny little you know (laughs) f like (laughs) information about it yeah um so the next novel is called blue skinned gods and it is coming out uh, summer of 2021, yes. so in about a year. And mm-hmm. uh, there's no exact date for it yet, but it's really, you know, they're still figuring out the schedule, but um, we're really close to pinning down an exact date, which is really exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is about, it takes place in India and, uh, and New York City. So there's two main um, settings. It's about a little boy who grows up in a Hindu cult. Um, cult? And they... A uh, cult, yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, they believe that he has the power to heal people. And so it's about him, like, he's, it starts when he's nine years old and, you know, uh, performing these miraculous healings and it follows his journey up until he's 22. Oh, can't wait to read that. That sounds... <laughs> That sounds amazing. That sounds good. That sounds up her alley. <laughs> yeah. Up her alley. It's like all the cults, all the killings, the mysteries. Yep. Give, give it give it to me. <laughs> <laughs> so what are, what are your, your top five books? Do you have a top five pick that you can pull from? I don't think I can even begin to do that. And, um, um, I'm sorry. It's such a harsh question. She also asked me this and I almost cried. Yeah. I'm like, Why? I, I love a lot of books. Um, I can give you top five in the last five years. We'll take it. Okay. Um, I would say Little Fires Everywhere. Yes. Uh, it's so good. And and the, the Hulu show is phenomenal. I really love I, I feel like that was Vidya's story. Like the continuation of it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. That is that actually fits really well. <laughs> um, oh, I didn't even think about that. That's so interesting. That's her right That's there. So oh yeah. yeah. The circle is complete. We found yes, out what happened. That's so interesting. <laughs> yeah, you, you found her. Like, um, I don't need to write it. Sting already wrote it. Um, and uh, what was it? Exit West was a huge mm. one. Um, I absolutely loved it. 
it hasn't. Uh, okay, I, I um, I'm blanking on the name, on the author's name, but um, it was absolutely just gorgeously written. Um, what else? Let's see. Between the World and Me. Yes. By C. Coates. It was yes. heartbreaking and beautiful. Um, I was just I was blown away. And Idaho, Emily Raskovich, mm. it was just haunting. That is, that book is haunting. It still haunts me. Oh, um, it's just you know beautifully written. Uh, I don't know if that's five, but those. No, are... that's four. <laughs> that's Wait, four. four. Yes, four. Um, probably Toni Morrison. Any mm. any of her books, but mm. I really like A Mercy. Um. I just, I don't know, there, there's that something about, like, her rewriting or, or taking inspiration from Virginia Woolf to write these monologues. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, it's, there's something, like, about that lineage that I really appreciate and love. Um, and, of course, her writing is just absolutely gorgeous. It is, like, it's so beautiful that I can't, like... You know, you know those people that are so pretty, you can't look at them? Yes. It's like that. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, how how were you able to write this, and why are people still writing after you? Like, yeah. do we need to continue? <laughs> yes, she she was The, the chapter amazing. is done. Definitely amazing. Oh, I have one more. Um, the uh, Octavia Butler... Uh, Kindred. The uh, I would recommend the graphic novel actually. Yes. Um, I think I think the graphic novel really like takes the best parts of the book and and sort of brings them to life in in, mm-hmm. a, in a way that the, the, the that just words can't. So mm-hmm. I, I absolutely love that book. It's it's beautiful. I used to be a, a high school librarian, and so that was the fun part of finding finding novels that had been turned into graphic novels. For, because mm-hmm. majority of the students that would come, that's what they're reading, mm-hmm. and it would be easier for them to get into a novel if they can actually like you know see it uh, play out in their eyes. Mm-hmm. So that one is a very beautiful, beautiful book. If somebody would come up to you and be like, "Can we do this into a Netflix show?" Would you say yes? Please say yes. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we gotta make that happen. We gotta start that petition. Yeah. I want to see that. Show. Start the movement. <laughs> <laughs> who would you want to be lucky that's a great question um i don't know i would i would want a, a dumbbell actress yes probably no one that that exists yet in the, in the mainstream <laughs> mm-hmm. um yeah i don't know but it would be cool yeah to see. it it would be nice to see this like as a series because it would it, just... you would have to find somebody who's okay with her hair being cut on screen like just buzzed off which is well, hard for a lot of people if it's gonna be on Netflix next, Netflix got that money she'll be okay that's true, she'll be this, is right. true. this is true <laughs> alright well um, I guess that brings us to the end of our wonderful talk with you we are just utterly excited that you would have taken your time out of the day to talk to us and we can't wait to see what you have for us to read in the future. Mm-hmm. And uh, we hope and pray that you stay safe and that your writing it just goes above and beyond anything that you 
could ever expect for yourself. And uh, we can't wait to, to see what's in store for you. So thank you for thank joining us. Thank you so us. much. Thank you so much for reading and for reading with such like generosity and care and for reading so closely. Like that's, that's always, you know, a writer's hope that somebody is going to connect to the work that they do. So it, thank it, you so much. It was not hard. You made it very easy <laughs> for us. Um, and I think it's important, especially for Asian people, to see that they're they are represented, that you know they are they're being seen, and it's okay to live differently, to live their their truths, because it's hard it's hard to be suppressed, and we've already been suppressed for such a long time, and you know finding something such as a story like this can you know if it changed like one person's life I think mm -hmm. you know you've done you've done the work so thank you for writing it thank you yeah. all right I guess we'll we'll let you go you have a wonderful rest of your day you too thank bye. you so bye. much bye We hope you enjoyed our show. Follow us on Instagram at Vulgar Geniuses Book Club. Our theme song was produced by Sean Kantrowitz. Follow him on Instagram and Twitter at Sean Dammit. That's spelled S-E-A-N-D-A-M-M-I-T. Make sure to like, comment, and subscribe to our podcast on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. See you next time. Deuces.